asked me to, to preach this week, and knowing he was going to be out of town, and of course I, I obliged. The good news is you don't have to wait till New Year's for 2019 for me to preach again. <laughs> it's kind of a bit of a running joke. I only preach New Year's services, for those of you that are not in on the joke. Um, <coughs> um, Exodus chapter 4, if you'll go with me to Exodus chapter 4, we're going to be reading from 18 to 31, verses 18 uh, through 31. Um, <clears throat> I find it refreshing and uh, really exciting to go through Old Testament passages. There's so much richness there. There's so much, uh, there's just, there's so much gospel in the Old Testament. I don't know if you realize that. It really is. It's riddled with go- the gospel message. That's why it's so easy, as Adam preaches, to just make that almost seamless connection to to what Christ has done for us and what the salvation and mercy and grace that we get to uh, partake of uh, today. Um, this passage has a, is a little bit challenging. There are, there are three verses in here that, um, as I was reading through this, um, looking over different scholars and theologians and different people that have uh, far, far more uh, educated and studious than, than I maybe ever will be in some cases, and they have no idea what to do with those verses. So the pressure's off. I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to all of a sudden stand up here and say, guys, guess what? They didn't do it, but I did. No, I did not. Uh, they are very confusing and just weird, but we're going to go through them anyway because it's God's Word. There it is. Um, let's read the passage. Exodus chapter 4, 18-31. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place in the way, to, uh, on the lodging, I'm sorry, excuse me, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met and sought to put him to death. Then Sipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So let him alone. So he let him alone. It was then that he said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went. And met with him in the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord uh, with which he had sent him to, to speak. And all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Uh, let's pray. Father, we have uh, done all that we know to do to prepare for this service, those that are involved in the service, those that are 
here. Father, we've shown up. We've taken the time to come because you have called us to you. We ask now, God, that every heart that is prepared to hear your word would hear it clearly, that they would hear your words, they would see your sovereignty, they would see your providence, they would understand and know uh, that you are God, and you are the God of every part of our life. You're the God of every part of our nation. You're the God of every part of this world and this universe. We thank you. We love you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I have a bit of a takeaway or kind of a main theme or main point, and that is to say if we are to walk in the providence of God, we must accept him as he presents himself, not as we wish him to be. Uh, providence, uh, loosely or just kind of generally defined, is basically uh, the protective care of God, uh, of nature, or of some kind of a spiritual power, right? That's just basic providence. A biblical worldview of providence um, is the governance of God by which he, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. God is, in fact, in charge of everything. There's nothing that God's hands, words, does not touch. It's all his, and he can do with it as he pleases. Um, so as we look at this, as we're introduced to God being the sovereign being over everything, which includes us, uh, we can all raise our hands, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but we can all admit if we look deep in ourselves that we have a problem with this. It's difficult to just fully accept the decrees of God. Uh, it's a challenge. Uh, one, because maybe we don't understand them. We're not quite, God, what do you mean here? This doesn't seem fair. It's a phrasing we like to use. It doesn't seem fair. Uh, we don't understand why God would decree what he decrees, but he does. Uh, another reason is because we want to be the Lord of our lives. We want to be God, essentially, and we want to run the show. And uh, I don't know about you, but that is... <laughs> is without question something I, I, I struggle with um, in my life. It's that pride of thinking that I've got this under control. And it's a little confusing because we do understand ourselves to be uh, beings of free will. Right? We have the freedom to choose. We have the ability to choose. Yet we are not sovereign as God is sovereign. We kind of understand that and sometimes we kind of don't. It's, it's, a, it's a challenge there. I look back in my life, and when I was about the age of six or seven, I remember giving my life to Christ. This wasn't just some kind of a, uh, I think I did. I'm, I'm positive that that's when the Lord Jesus Christ came into my life. It was about the age of six or seven. And the reason I believe that's when, that's when it took place is I remember being in a church service. Uh, my dad was preaching. And just, my dad was a pastor, for those of you that don't know. I just realized I just jumped in mid my life, and you guys have no idea anything else, any of the details. My dad was a pastor, and uh, he was preaching, and I remember there being an, you know, an altar call. We, we grew up in a, in a Pentecostal church, so that was something that was done, and people would go up for prayer, and uh, you know, pretty normal, pretty normal Sunday service. And then uh, I remember sitting in the front pew as I did, either to nap, or to play, or to snack, right? That's kind of what I did there. Um, and I remember just sitting there, understanding as best as seven or six or seven-year-old can, God's love. Just, it just made sense to me. God loves me. He cares for me. He wants to save me. So I gave my life to him. 
I walked up to the altar little area there. It's a small church in northern New Mexico up in a, uh, actually the, the church is still there. It's an art gallery now, another story. Um, and I knelt down at the altar and I just, Lord, I give my life to you. And I just remember doing that. And then I got up and my mom came and sat next to me and says, what did you just do? I said, well, I just gave my life to Christ. And my mom prayed with me. And so it was a wonderful thing. A little few years later, I was about the age of 13, I began to understand or sense or believe that God had put a calling on my life to ministry, which is a weird thing for a 13-year-old to experience. Uh, now, it wasn't at that age that I, you know, it wasn't some really drastic event of, well, I guess I need to go to Bible school now or a monastery or I need to go somewhere, I need to go do something. It was just, a, it was just an in, inner thought sense of God saying, you're going to minister in some way, shape, or form in your life. So, okay, wow, this is, that's kind of crazy. This is where it gets interesting. Between the ages of 14 and 18, oh, all kinds of bad stuff was happening. I was a fool of fools. And I thought, this is where I wanted to be the God of my life. This is where I wanted to rule my world, my life, nothing else mattered. And so I got into trouble. Um, I won't go into too many details because... I don't know you that well. <clears throat> there was some drug use involved. There was some violent gang activity involved. There was a partying lifestyle. There was a, a bitterness. There was a, there was a hatred. There was a rebelliousness. There was, you know, just, just this ugly, ugly person that I had become. And my parents couldn't do anything about it. Dropped out of high school uh, my freshman year of high school and just never went back, and, and just a lot of things were taking place there in my life where I wanted to rule the day. But there was an interesting thing that took place. God never let me go. And I know this now. I can look back at my life and understand that I gave my life to him, and he called me into ministry, and no matter what I did, God was going to be God. He was going to be sovereign. He was going to uh, show his providence in my life, and so he did. And I remember thinking to myself, like, <clears throat> just frustrated. I wanted to go out into the world, and I wanted to sin, and I wanted to sin my way, and I wanted to live it up, and I just, I really, truly couldn't do it. I would, I would do something, and I would just feel like trash, <laughs> and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that, and the guilt and, and the, just the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life would constantly pull me back, and my mom was a crazy praying mom. Like, that woman would just pray and pray and pray and pray, and so I would get frustrated, like, God, just let me sin for a little while. So let me go out and just do my thing. But no, God would not do it. He wouldn't let me do it. This is God's providence over our lives. This is God's sovereignty. Uh, Abraham made a bunch of mistakes in his journey to what God had promised him. And there was nothing that Abraham was going to do that, that was going to thwart God's plans. Moses complains. Doesn't he anger God in the previous... Uh, previous verses that Adam preached, he angers God. He gets God angry. I can't speak. I don't want to speak. Fine, I'll give you Aaron, but you, you're not stopping this. This is going to happen. My people will be delivered. My word will go out. See, this is God's sovereignty, and Scripture shows this. So uh, there's a couple of verses here that I want to share with you very quickly, uh, more than a couple, actually. Uh, God is sovereign over the universe, the physical world, the affairs of nations, human destiny, 
human success and failure, the protection of his people. Here are the verses. He is Lord over the universe. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. He's sovereign over the physical world. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, the latter part of 45. For he makes his sun, the sun, rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Kind of messes with our idea of fairness, that verse. He is sovereign over the, na- uh, the affairs of nations. Psalm 66, verse 7. Who rules by his might forever, who, who, uh, whose eyes keep watch on the nations, let not the rebellious exalt himself. He is sovereign over human destiny. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. He's sovereign over human success and failure. Luke chapter 1, verse 52. He has, bought, uh, I'm sorry, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And finally, he is uh, sovereign over the protection of his people. Psalm chapter 4, verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. He's sovereign. And we are called to walk in his providence. Let's look at the chapter that we're, uh, the verses that we are, uh, that I'm commissioned to preach this morning. So starting with verse 18, again it says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men uh, who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. My first point this morning is that through God's providence, we see his sovereignty and we receive his sonship. I'm sorry, let me go to all the way to verse 23. That wasn't the full part. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus thus saith the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go so that he may serve me. If you refuse to let me go, if if you refuse to let him go, behold I will kill your firstborn son. Uh, so Moses takes off. <clears throat> Excuse me, this is it. Moses leaves. Uh, but before he leaves, he does something, I think, pretty significant. He asks Jethro, his father-in-law, for permission. Now, Moses is a much older man at this time, right? He's, I believe, 80 or close to 80, somewhere around there. I'm not going to give an exact number, but he's, he's definitely older. And he is working for his father-in-law. He tends his sheep, he uses his uh, goods, his merchandise, whatever it is that he needs to do the job that he does. He is under the rule or the authority of his father-in-law. So God, the authority above Jethro, calls Moses to, to do this thing. And Moses, understanding where he is in the patriarchal society that he lives in, he says, I want, I'm going to ask for permission. I need my father-in-law's blessing." is really important, because if we're going to go out and do anything in the name of God, um, we don't do that in, the, in a way that is deliberately to offend those around us or to harm or hurt our families. And so Moses does this really wonderful thing where we, we recognize the calling of God on, on, on his life, but he still understands the authorities that are around him. He asks for permission, so he goes. Now, it's important to understand what Moses did here. So he asked for permission. Jethro says, you go, you have, you have my blessing, go in peace. 
God tells Moses, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Uh, this is an indication that the, there was a shifting of power. So if the pre, this, in Moses' mind, this is what this meant. The previous Pharaoh who had had this uh, uh, charge over Moses for the crime he committed is now dead. And there's a new Pharaoh, which means no one's after him anymore. It's done. It's over. So now you can kind of go there. That charge is no longer against you. The slate has been wiped clean. And so he takes his wife and his sons on a donkey, and they begin to go to Egypt. And he took the staff of God. See, this isn't just a shepherd's staff anymore. Now this is the staff of God. This is the thing that God is going to use to perform the miracles and to bring uh, 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 salvation and, and freedom to the, to the Israelites. So he takes the staff of God. And the staff of God is a symbol of God's divine authority. Moses doesn't go alone. This isn't Moses trekking out on his own as, hey, this is me. Check me out. He went under the authority and sovereignty and providence of God. And he takes this seemingly insignificant thing, a stick, right? We say staff, and sometimes we think, well, this is a really cool staff. It's, it was a stick. It was a, probably a good stick, but it was a stick. And God took this, and now it's a representation of God's power and authority. Where else do we see that in Scripture? In the cross. We see this seemingly insignificant object, and yet now today for us it represents the price that Christ paid for our sins. And there we find salvation, there we find freedom, there we find redemption, there we find mercy, and we find grace. This is the, this is the means by which Moses is going to de deliver God's people. It's going to perform the signs. It's going to show Moses to be a true prophet. It's going to bring disease upon the Egyptians. Staff is this visible sign of God. Now, here's another part that we have a hard time understanding. So as we move forward, uh, verse 21, it says, Lord, um, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform or that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I'll harden his heart. That's, that's, it's interesting. I'm going to harden his heart. What does that mean? that I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. If we're not careful, uh, if we loosely and irresponsibly kind of try to divide this passage of Scripture or interpret it, we can unintentionally make God the father of sin. God is going to cause Pharaoh to sin. That's not exactly what's happening here. That is not what God is doing. But in God's sovereignty, he does say, I'm going to harden his heart. So let's establish a few things. This is being done uh, not just to, to show God's sovereignty over Israel, but over Egypt as well. See, because in, 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 in Egyptian times, uh, Pharaoh is in fact a, a reincarnation of God or a God or several gods. He is in fact a deity to, to the people. So here is God, Yahweh, uh, Lord of Israel, showing God, lowercase g, uh, who's more powerful, right? And so we see this. <clears throat> now, there are some passages in Scripture and, and throughout Exodus, and I'm only going to use three of them, where we see where Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Uh, right here in verse 4, um, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 21, where it says God will harden Pharaoh's heart. In Exodus chapter 8, it says uh, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And in another passage, in, in chapter 7, verse 13, it says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It doesn't say that God did it or that he did it, but it was just hardened. So who really hardened Pharaoh's heart here? 
was Pharaoh. This thing was already there. The sin, this, this, this evil was already in him. If, if Pharaoh's walking around saying, no, I'm God. I am Ra. I am, I am the God. I am the master of these people. And God is saying, well, no, I'm the master of these people. These are my people. That's a, that's a hard heart already. And there is sin and ugliness that already exists within Pharaoh. And so God, what does God do? I'm going to harden his heart. I'm going to let him walk in what he's already got in his heart, in his life. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 26, uh, 23, excuse me, says, No, for I will harden your heart against them. When God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he allowed Pharaoh's heart to do what Pharaoh wanted to do. God was giving Pharaoh over to his own sin. Augustine has a quote, and he says, God does not harden men by putting evil into them, but by not giving them mercy. So he's going to harden his heart. And there's this battle taking place. Who's going to win? Pharaoh, who believes he's a god, or God, who is actually God. Uh, if we continue on, uh, we can see that uh, verse 22 says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my first born son. There's a sonship that immediately is, is, is pr present here. These are, this is my child. This is my son. And I, I want my son back. And look, look at what he says. This is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. This could be looked at as kind of really the heart of the Exodus. These are my people, and I need my son to come home to serve me and to worship me. That's my child. Let my child go. They belong to me. They're not yours. I'm their master. You're a lesser master a far worse master. So he desires that we, be, we serve him, that we worship him. Uh, uh, this wasn't simply a desire to see an emancipation, just a freedom of slavery, uh, uh, but, a, but a repatriation, uh, which simply means that it's a coming back home to your home country, to where you belong, to where you, were, where you originally belong. So this fight with Pharaoh for lordship of this is a fight for uh, with Pharaoh, excuse me, uh, for the lordship of God's people. So we have to look at this a certain way, though. We can't look at the Exodus and assume that the people of Israel are innocent and it's the Egyptians that are the sinners, right? Sometimes we have that kind of a, a narrative in our head, like, oh, the Israelites are just innocent, you know, people. We're no, no, they're not innocent, as we're going to find out in these next few verses that that Moses uh, is guilty of already. But instead, it's, 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 again, a matter of who is sovereign. Is it the God of Israel or the gods of Egypt? So here we go into these next few verses. This is where it gets weird, guys. <clears throat> I didn't know what to do with these. Adam and I met early in the week, and he says, hey, man, tell me how the sermon's going. How's the sermon prep going? And I kind of took a deep breath, and I said, bro, what did you give me to preach? <laughs> But this is good because if I read and I looked at the commentaries and the scholars and the theologians who, again, are far more educated and experienced than I am, the pressure's off. It's not on me to figure this out. And so the answer to the questions that I'm going to ask are, I don't know. That's all there is to it. Uh, I don't know, and, and I don't know if we'll ever know. We'll know when we get to heaven, right? We'll know when we stand before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, in the meantime, they're here and we have to deal with them. But here's what they don't do. They don't 
mess with what we understand the covenant to mean, what circumcision meant in the Old Testament, right? So we still get that, we still understand that, and we still know that it points to Christ, right? That's good. There's no confusion there. But here we go. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So let him alone. So he let him alone. Sorry, I keep reading that wrong. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Yeah. So here's some questions. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him. Who is him? Doesn't say. Passage doesn't say. Who is him? And sought to put him to death. Now, before you even begin to say, well, it's Moses. Well, no, it's Moses' son. Like, it really doesn't say, and we don't know. So who is him? Who does God seek to kill? Is it Moses? Because what does that mean? That's, that's interesting, because God just finished calling Moses to do this, this great exodus, to do this thing. Go set my people free. I'm commissioning you. I've given you the staff of God. I've given you these miracles and these signs to perform. I've given you Aaron. Now go and just... From one second to the next, it seems like, at least it's how we read it, now I want to kill you. It's a little interesting. So we don't know who the him is. Why would he put him to death? And, and so how do we know that he wanted to put him to death? Did someone get sick? Was there, was there some type of ailment present where, oh my goodness, this person is going to die? Is it Gershom, Moses' firstborn son? Is it Moses himself? We don't know, but here's some interesting things. Moses grew up... Egyptian, did he not? If he was able to do that, most likely he was not circumcised. His mother didn't circumcise him because I don't, that would instantly kill him. They would just toss the baby somewhere else. He's not circumcised. This is not an Egyptian child. And he was married to a Midianite who possibly also didn't want to circumcise their children, right? So there's some speculation there. There's some thoughts. Then verse 25 says, Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touches Moses' feet with it and says, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Uh, Interesting thing that it's a woman doing this. Zipporah, Gershom's mother, is the one doing the circumcision. That's also not done. Here's another thing. When When was a person supposed to be circumcised? At what age? Eight days after their birth. I don't know how old Gershom is, but he's not a child. Ouch. <clears throat> hey, it's, this is the passage, guys. <laughs> and so she cuts off her son's foreskin and touches Moses' feet. Now, if you'll notice, in this, in, in, if you have an ESV, it says Moses, but there is a, uh, a note next to that. Uh, the Hebrew translation, or, or if we look back into the original text, it, it, it's, it says his, his feet. So we still don't know, is it Moses' feet or is it Gershom's feet? Here's another funny one. Feet, oftentimes in the Old Testament, is a euphemism or an idiom for genitals. So was it actual feet that were touched with the foreskin 
or was it someone's genitals? Was it Gershom's genitals that were touched or was the foreskin thrown or touched on Moses' lap? This is weird. This is weird. But somehow, some way, Zipporah understood there was a sin of omission taking place. Whether Moses was or was not circumcised, whether Gershom was, uh, not, was or was not circumcised, how does someone who is going to lead the people of Israel, God's chosen people, out of slavery, who did not bear that covenant sign, that I am a part of this body, that I am a part of this community, that's, that's a sin in Scripture. If we look at uh, Genesis, let's go back to Genesis very quickly, uh, if you have your Bibles. <clears throat> We're going to read uh, Genesis chapter 17, and I'm just going to read a few verses, uh, verse 10 uh, through 14, or verse 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you uh, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, excuse me, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old, um, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money. Uh, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Moses was in trouble, or Gershom was in trouble. Someone was in trouble, and a circumcision needed to, be, needed to take place. Very challenging verse, right? So Moses neglected his spiritual responsibility to his own family. Now God is showing us that there's only one way to salvation, and that is through the shedding of blood. That's what the point of the covenant of circumcision was. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Romans 3.25, the first part of the verse, Whom God put forward as a propitiation, excuse me, that's a tongue twister, by his blood to be received by faith. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now Christ Jesus, who was once uh, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. The people of Israel, Egypt, and today we stand under the wrath of God. And if there is no shedding of blood, we aren't saved. We all have failed to keep God's law and are subject to the curse against our sin. But Christ's sacrifice and shedding of blood has stayed God's wrath. He became a perfect substitute, and today the circumcision that is spoken, and today the circumcision uh, is, is spoken of as a circumcision of the heart, that as sons of God through Christ we may partake in the benefits of that sonship. We cannot serve God any other way. 
If we're going to walk in God's providence, he has made that path clear to us. God goes. God does what he will do. God is sovereign. He's Lord over all. We can't argue that. We just got to walk in that providence. And as we understand what, what Moses had gone through, he had to get some things straight. This shedding of blood has to take place. And now you're one of my people. And now you are one of my sons, or you are my son. There, the hard part's over. Verse 27, as we finish this passage, and it's kind of funny how we kind of go through all this, and then all of a sudden at the end, there's this kind of just almost abrupt ending. Because uh, if, if we look a little before through, through one of Adam's sermons, I believe it was the one before this last week's, um, Moses, or yeah, Moses was making a big deal. I can't speak. I don't know how to do this. Uh, do you have the right person? So on and so forth. This, I'm not the man for the job. And all of a sudden, here Moses goes to meet Aaron and stand before the elders of Israel, and it just ends because it's like, oh, we're done. And all of Moses' fears are completely unfounded. So let's look at it. Verse 27, and with this, we'll, we'll begin to close. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke of all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. God's sovereignty is not a burden. God's sovereignty, God's providence is not a curse to us. Where we have to say, well, no, I'm the Lord of my life. I want to live the way I want to live. I'm in control. You and I are a creature, meaning we are a creation. We've been made. Life was breathed into us. How are we to say to the creator, I got this now? How do we do that? doesn't make a lot of sense. We have to submit to the authority, to the sovereignty of God. Moses' fears didn't come true. How many times have our fears, though a real part of us, have caused us to lose trust in God? has caused us to fail or falter or go this way or go that way. Uh, as I did when I was 14 years of age, I decided, nope, I'm going to go over here. And God in his wisdom and patience and mercy is like, okay, you're, that's going to be hard for you. You're going to have a tough few years, but don't worry, I'll bring you back. God has called us. He's adopted us. He has saved us. He is with us. And there's not much you and I can do about it. Not much time is devoted to this part of the passage where Moses meets with the elders. They just believed and they worshiped. They bowed and they worshiped. We must understand that in God we are not burdened any less. Or let me, let me rephrase that. In Christ Jesus, there's nothing that says you will have no burdens. He just simply says, my yoke is light and my burden is, or my burden is light and my yoke is easy. I'm a better master than any other master that you would serve. I'm a better king. I'm a better Lord. I'm a better God than you can be. 
I'm a better God than your country can be. I'm a better Lord than wealth can be, than prosperity and popularity can be. Think of the world that we live in. We have American gods. We have American gods. It's not as blatant as the gods of Egypt or the gods of Greece or Rome as in the mythologies that we study in school and understand, but we have things that we will put above who God is. And God is still saying, these are my people and my will will be done. And we have this wonderful opportunity to walk in the providence of God. As I said in the beginning, um, we must accept God as he presents himself, not as we wish him to be. Because then he ceases to be God. If today you see that the rule and reign of God is better than yours, that his call upon you to be his for his service and his glory is a lighter burden, and if you can grasp the price paid for your and my sin that has been absorbed by a sinless, spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, then the correct response this morning is what the elders of Israel did. They bowed and they worshiped. They submitted to that authority. They understood you are God. You alone are God. And I will worship you. This chapter ends with a kind of doxology. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. God has called us to preach the gospel in this day and age. We have been set apart. We have been commissioned to go and make disciples everywhere, every part of the world. And we do this not because, I mean, we're, we're like Moses. We're unable to speak, whatever that was for Moses. We're fearful. We're, we don't understand the decrees of God. We struggle with giving up that control. But God has called us to proclaim his word. And when we submit ourselves and walk in the providence of God, understanding his sovereignty, the best and only response, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. I worship that God. He is a better master than any other God that we can serve. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Father, we thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to dive into your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that we have heard and understood what you have done in Moses' life, we can look back and see how you delivered your people, and that's a beautiful picture that we have. We can look through the span of time, and we can see this redemptive story begin to play out, and, and it's, it's a beautiful thing, but we, we understand how it applies to us today as well. We get that you have called us to be your sons. You have called us to serve. Let my son go that he may serve me. Father, help us to understand your your plan, your word. Help us to recognize you as the sovereign Lord of this universe and submit ourselves to your mastery, God. It's in you that we understand who we're called to be. It's in you that we understand what we should be doing, how we should be doing, Lord. And, and sometimes we just fight that. We fight you being our God. But we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your son's sacrifice. And Lord, if today there is anyone that... Uh, recognizes their need for that master, not the master of their own making, not the master that a culture or society has produced, 
but you. Then I pray that we are able to run to you, Father. We thank you, we love you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.